Well, this is the third week in this very same passage. Uh, it's, there's a lot here. There's an awful lot to chew on, and we haven't had a lot of time to do it. And thanks to Cal, we don't have, no, I'm just kidding. It's not thanks to Cal. <laughs> but we're going to finish this week. I'm sure we're going to make it. By the way, Cal and I have a love language, and you've been hearing it all morning long. That's, that's how this works. Let me just remind you a little bit of where we've been. First of all, the, the broad brushstrokes of this passage. We are in the book of Revelation. This is a type of literature called apocalyptic, which uses symbols to convey meaning, basically heavenly meanings that are difficult to express in earthly ways. It was also a way of writing in code, because a lot of this book has pretty clear reference to Rome. And the people this book were written to lived in Rome. And it's dangerous to go around saying, I don't think Caesar is such a great guy. That's a great way to end up with your head chopped off or dying on a cross, as a matter of fact. So uh, we should expect that these are symbols that we're reading. There is no great cosmic woman who's waiting to give birth and a dragon waiting to eat it. Instead, these refer to actual things in history, true both in heaven and on earth. So, for example, the woman represents the church. That's why she's got 12 of all these different things adding up to 24 on her because of the 12 tribes of Israel expressed again as 12 tribes belonging to the church. So the woman represents God's chosen people throughout all of history. Then she gives birth, and there is a very important birth that takes place in Christian history. It's the birth of Jesus Christ. The great dragon, who is identified in the passage itself as Satan, waits to eat the woman's offspring. In other words, to defeat him, essentially, to kill him and win. And he does make an attempt at it, but he doesn't succeed. And that lack of success is a key part of understanding what's happening here in this passage. So here are the main players. You have, you have Jesus Christ, you have Satan, and you have, essentially, the church. And we've spoken to this point about how uh, there are three things we need to understand about, well, first, there's a big thing we need to understand about the world that we live in right now. There is a great enemy, and we are quick to label enemies in this world, aren't we? Sometimes it's uh, between nation-states, crossing uh, boundaries between nations. Sometimes it's uh, different uh, people in politics. Sometimes it's somebody at school that you're at work that you don't get along with. Uh, we're quick to find enemies in this world that we live in. And the nice thing about enemies, and something that we do very quickly, is we start to say, it's what? It's all their fault. All of this stuff, it's all that person's fault. It's all my enemy's fault one way or another. We're getting ready to uh, go through another presidential election cycle, and that's the message we're going to hear, right? It's all that person's fault. No, it's all that person's fault. Uh, it's kind of a bummer. I'd like to hear more about, okay, but what are we going to do about it instead of whose fault it is? But in any case, that's what we do with enemies. It's all your fault. But our enemies are not what they seem to be. See, the world has a great enemy, Satan himself. Satan is, uh, first of all, not probably super kosher or uh, politically correct to talk about in the world that we live in today for a number of reasons, one of which is we're just too smart to believe in things like angels and demons, right? 
Uh, and I'd push back on that, saying, you know, uh, we might look around and, and point out, yeah, people in ancient times believed in those things, but first of all, if we discount something because people in the olden days believed it, uh, C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery. He said, it's just arrogance. It's saying, I'm smart because I live in a later era than you do. And if you uh, are confused about this, every generation makes this mistake, by the way. Uh, I was talking to somebody a little while ago, and we were talking about a younger generation and all the things that are bad with the younger generation. Actually, uh, so I am a geriatric millennial. I like making that distinction. Geriatric millennial helps me out here. But also, I, 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 I am one of those millennials, and I don't really like people talking smack about me all the time. But I'm actually old enough now that there is a generation behind me, right, Gen Z. And I, I read these articles sometimes about, like, Gen Z in the workplace. You know what I find myself doing? Those young whippersnappers stink, <laughs> right? Do you remember the first time you started thinking that? Right? Especially if you're older than me out there. There was a moment, wasn't there, when you realized I'm complaining about the younger generation. Let me tell you something right now. Stop it. It's okay to laugh a little bit as long as we understand at the end to stop it. It's boring. It's what your parents did about you. It's what their parents did about them. It's what everybody has done about every younger generation in history. Be creative and original and stop it. Young people bring a lot of wonderful things. And as a matter of fact, do you think that we're ever going to be a church that ministers well to young people unless we know what to value about them? Stop it. And do something else instead. Find the wonderful things in our young people. Find the wonderful things in the young people who aren't here yet and start loving it. And it'll change the way you live and it'll change the makeup of our church. That wasn't really actually the point this morning. I just kind of got off track because, right, enemies, we blame them for everything. These young people, Homer Simpson once said about young people, I believe that young people are the future unless we stop them first. And that's how some of us feel but the great enemy is Satan himself. And it would be foolish to say, well, just because people in olden days believed in him and we're smarter than them, first of all, that's arrogant and it's boring and it's uncreative. Don't do that. Secondly, when we look out at the world that we live in today, the Western world is the exception in how we view the spiritual world, not the rule. As a matter of fact, Scripture was written to people who believed that there were spiritual forces at work all the time. It wasn't always their fault all the time. They still had plenty of room for personal responsibility. It didn't just come out of ignorance either, but it came out of experience because in many ways, when the Enlightenment came along and we said science is the best way to learn about our world and science is an awesome way to learn about our world, but the mistake the Enlightenment made was saying science is the only way we can really learn about our world. If you study the epistemology of naturalism and uh, uh, of empiricism, these are the claims and the statements that they make. We can only know what science can tell us. And it's just not true. And it's just not true. And you know it from the life that you live. Because do you love anybody? Do you love anybody? I assume everybody here loves somebody. If you do, you didn't need science to tell you so. And you didn't need science to know it. Because we perceive things in many different ways. And one of the things that we've perceived about the world is that the great enemy is not actually my neighbor. It's not actually the demagogue that comes out of that other political party, whichever one it may be for you. It's not actually that other country somewhere else. 
It's the fact that we are all deluded and deceived by the great enemy, the great dragon, Satan. That word Satan, by the way, as we mentioned last week, uh, and the word devil itself uh, as well, Satan, by the way, is the Hebrew, the Hasatan. And then uh, uh, Diabolos is our Greek, from which we get devil. And both of them have the same or similar connotations of slanderer and accuser. And that's exactly what we see Satan doing in Revelation chapter 12. And that's exactly what God says you will no longer do because the baby has been born, because he has done his work, and your slander has no place here any longer in heaven. Your accusation means nothing anymore, Satan. We spent some time talking about that last week. The great enemy is Satan, and he tries to tear down every good thing that God is doing by pointing out everything that is wrong with it. But God will not listen, and he will not let Satan's accusations, his exaggerations, and his outright lies determine the way he runs the world. So for that reason, when Christians are out in the world living in whatever way we do in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, and life gets hard because of it, we don't have to be afraid because Satan can no longer accuse. His accusations no longer succeed. But secondly, now we're into new material. The second reason that the opposition of the world need not be feared is because God wins and Satan loses. God wins and Satan loses. Satan is ultimately a created being. There are some philosophies of the nature of the world that are called uh, sometimes dualism, this idea that there are two opposing forces that exist in our world. This is maybe best represented by, I I looked up the name for this and I've forgotten it because I looked it up weeks ago and I didn't look at it in my notes this morning. But you remember the circle with the sinuous line through it, right? One side is white, one side is black, and there's a little black dot in the white and a little white dot in, in the black. This is an expression of dualism that good and evil exist uh, in some way in equal measure because that sinuous line actually divides that circle equally. And inside good is maybe a little bit of evil, and inside evil is maybe a little bit of good. So it's the great illusion. It's the great illusion that we need to be one way or the other because really they are part of each other. That's where I think dualism takes us at the end of the day. This world is all, as many Eastern religions say, this world is all ultimately only illusion. And one day we'll get past it all if we reach enlightenment or something else, if we live well enough, if we're a Brahmin, something along these lines. We'll get to the point where we get past all of these old ideas of good and evil, of one winning over the other and into the universe as it really is. And that's not the Christian way of looking at it. And I think the Christian way of looking at it is a lot more compelling. And here's why. Anyone here ever suffered? You can participate. That's okay. (laughs) Did you enjoy it? Would you like to stop suffering someday? These questions feel rhetorical, right? Like, of course, of course, of course. Yes, I'd, I'd like to stop. But see, if, if we live in this dualistic world where these, there are these two equal and opposite opposing forces and, and we're somehow caught in the middle, there's no escape at the end of the day. There's no escape. One doesn't triumph over the other. Not only this, but uh, suffering itself is really illusory. You feel like you're suffering, but really it's something else that's happening. 
This is one of the things I love. I love about our faith and what it teaches us about the world that we live in. I think some people say the goal is to escape suffering. Some people say the goal is to accept suffering. And for Christians, the goal is neither. The goal is to go through suffering. Not to accept it and say, well, it's just going to happen. There's nothing I can do. See, as Christians, we still get to say this is wrong, and it shouldn't be this way. And uh, not just to say, oh, I, I have to avoid suffering somehow. I have to get out of here. Because that's not how Jesus lived, is it? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He chose suffering, scorning its shame. See, as Christians, we get to say when we suffer, this is wrong. This is temporary. It won't last forever because God is stronger than Satan, and he has defeated him because good wins at the end of the day because good is really a thing. So when we suffer, we say, this is wrong indeed, but it's worth it because God makes dead people alive again because God turns lemons into lemonade. And then he takes the lemons in the first place that you never wanted to have anything to do with, and he somehow made them sweet all along. See, that's the magic, if I can use that word, of the resurrection in the first place, is the resurrection isn't just something that happens way out there in the future that we're waiting for so hard and hoping that we'll get there and we can forget all of this nasty stuff in the past. Because what's the story with Jesus? Jesus has died, he suffered, and then he rose to life. But then when we see him in the book of Revelation up in heaven, do you remember how he's described all the way back in chapters 4 and 5? The angel says, don't worry, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed, he has won, and he can open the scroll. And then John looks, and you remember what he sees? He says, I saw someone looking like a lamb that had been slain. See, he, Jesus has taken what was his shame, and what was his agony. And somehow his resurrection life has worked backward through it to the very beginning to make it glory. Remember how Jesus was born? He's born uh, in some people. We're not actually 100% sure where it was, but we do know he was born among the animals because there was no room for him in the nice room. And when he was born, they laid him in the feeding trough because there was no other place to put him. He wasn't born in the palace. He wasn't born in the castle. And yet, whose birth do we remember 2,000 years later? Jesus. Because that resurrection life has worked all the way back to his shame and made it glory. And now we think, what a wonderful thing that the Son of God was laid in the manger, in the feeding trough, among all the smelliness, among all the dirt, and all of that humility. That's the way the resurrection works. See, God doesn't just win. He doesn't just, you know, send Satan to the penalty box or something like that. His victory works back to the very beginning and somehow makes it all right. And I don't know how to explain it other than by pictures. That's why Revelation is written in pictures. Because it doesn't make sense to me how the agony I felt from that thing that happened, the agony that you went through because of that illness 
or that broken relationship. I, I, can't, I can't tell you this is exactly what resurrection will do. All I can say is resurrection will be present there. And you will look back and you will see and you will say it was good. God defeats Satan. And getting to the text itself, it says, War broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Michael is uh, an archangel. He appears a, a few times in the Old Testament. Uh, he appears in the non-canonical literature, too. So we know he was an important guy to John's audience. People would think of him as one of the mightiest of heaven's warriors. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but the dragon was not strong enough, and he lost his place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And from where is the earth ruled in Revelation's telling of the story? It's from heaven. Satan no longer has a hand in the ruling of the earth. And yet we will be reminded in a few moments, well, but he's still someone to be reckoned with. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And maybe on the one hand, it seems a little bit like a threat to us, right? Oh, no, Satan's wandering around on the earth. But actually to the people that John wrote this letter to, it would have been, oh, that makes so much sense now because it sure feels like somebody's raging. Because they were suffering and dying for their faith. Because it felt like Satan was after them. God says, well, he is, but he won't win. I've taken care of that. Uh, as Presbyterians, uh, you know, whether you are a Presbyterian or Baptist or non-denominational or anything, you are very welcome here. But the, the church belongs to a Presbyterian denomination. And one, uh, one hallmark of the Reformed tradition is a belief that God is in charge, that he is sovereign over all of history. He's sovereign over me. He's even sovereign over my salvation in a pretty spectacular way. And there are different ways that Reformed folks have explained this. And I don't want to get into the whole thing this morning. But for Reformed folks have talked about this in the past of, you know, God, God chooses who is saved and who's not saved. So don't, don't go into the weeds with me here at the moment. I'm, just, I'm telling you this to illustrate a point. And I was sharing this with a new members class once. And I was in my new members class, and somebody was very offended by this doctrine, which is understandable. It doesn't, you know, some of it, I happen to believe the doctrine for reasons I'd be happy to explain to you some other time after the sermon. But, uh, but I can see, you know, this idea, it's not my choice. It's not up to me. So one person was very offended, but there was another person in the room who said, oh, that makes so much more sense now. Now, this was not an answer I was anticipating receiving. And so I said, well, what do you mean? And this person had had someone in their life who had been very cruel and very uh, abusive toward them. And this person said, I couldn't imagine any reason God would have let someone like that exist in my life to cause so much pain. But if it's true that God is ultimately in charge of our destiny, then God always knew who this person was and what to do with him. Folks, I haven't had a relationship like that in my life. And I struggle. I struggle with the thought that anyone is worthy Anyone's worthy of hell. 
that anyone could belong there. And it's because I haven't suffered. N.T. Wright talks a lot about uh, people sometimes like to say, well, how, how could hell exist at all? How could there be a Satan and a devil who would do these horrible things? You know, none of this makes sense. Why doesn't God just let everybody in at the end of the day? Why, why does the Bible talk about judgment? And Wright says, you say that because you haven't suffered. Because when you talk to people who have suffered, they say, somebody needs to be held accountable. And I see a couple of you out there nodding because you've suffered. Say, somebody needs to answer for this. Uh, Wright goes on to say, we might be tempted to point the finger at God at that point. Say, God, maybe it's you. Maybe you should suffer. Maybe you should be responsible for all of this. There's an old, right quoted an old evangelistic tract, something that was meant to point people to Jesus. And it said, the nations of the world got together to pronounce sentence on God for all the evil that he had done or that he had allowed or that he had willed or however you want to put it. And then it says, only to find with the shock that he had already served his sentence. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty. Because Jesus Christ knows suffering. Because not only was every human wrath and anger poured out on him, did you ever think Jesus was uh, sent to the cross by the jeering of the crowd, by the planning of the religious leaders, and by the complicity of the politicians? Every power on earth conspired to put him there and poured out their anger upon him. But that wasn't enough because Jesus on the cross absorbed God's wrath for our sin. No one has paid the penalty like Jesus. See, God is more powerful than Satan. He has outthought him, he has outfought him, and he wins. And finally, the third reason persecution, finally, three weeks worth of finally, the reason persecution and suffering doesn't need to be feared is because we can conquer by the way of Jesus. Have you ever noticed no conquest lasts forever? Where's Napoleon? Where's Augustus? Where is the French Empire and the Roman Empire? Where will you know, the American influence in the world be one day? I guarantee you, our country won't always be this powerful. The sun did indeed set on the British Empire, as it turns out. No empire lasts forever. They all come to an end, which means that we're doing it wrong. Every effort that we've made, none of them have lasted we're still here dealing with the same problems. There's this great passage where, where uh, someone comes, you know, a woman comes and breaks in a jar of expensive perfume on Jesus to anoint, Jesus says, to anoint me for my burial. And Judas, who keeps the money string, you know, he keeps the purse, and he's not a nice guy, so he sees this happen, he says, oh, we could have sold this and given all the money to the poor, and, and I could have taken a little bit out of it at the same time. That's what's happening. And Jesus says, stop, stop. She's done a beautiful thing for me. You will always have the poor with you. Now, Jesus isn't trying to discourage the nonprofits. Like, dude, you're fighting a hopeless battle. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that as long as the world is this way, there will be poor people. 
And we should, have learned, we should have learned it by now, right? No matter how many alms we gave in the marketplace or to the panhandlers, there was still poverty. No matter how good the jobs program was, there was still poverty. No matter if we switched over into socialism, there is still poverty. There is no system in this world that will fix all of these things. But we keep trying. And there's something heroic and noble about the attempt. Because we ought to love folks, whether they're in poverty or in wealth or somewhere in between, whether they're sick or they're healthy. We, we can do something to care for our neighbors. But we can't repair what's broken in the world on our own. Where is Augustus? Whereas Napoleon, by the way, did you know Napoleon was one of the great law writers in the world? He was really an amazing, brilliant guy with a pretty bad ego problem. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter the laws that we write. They won't finally fix it, even if they might make it better. But here's what we hesitate to try. Revelation 12, 11. Uh, It says here, well, I'm going to start in verse 10, actually. John hears a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been hurled down, and they triumphed over him. Do you get that? You and I are part of this picture. We triumph over him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink. Death. In other words, the great weapon that Christians have at our disposal, the way that we win, is not through the exercise of power by getting new laws passed, although that's not a bad thing. It's not by winning arguments, although we may at times win arguments, and I really like winning arguments. It's not by earning people's respect or by gaining cultural credibility or by stooping to the level of our adversaries, which we are often tempted to do, or sometimes other people do with us because we've already gone down there. God forgive us, or even by carving out our own little paradise for ourselves. Once again, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, as followers of the Lamb, these people believe that they have already been saved by his blood, by Jesus' blood, and that his self-giving to death is the pattern which they must now follow, and that is what wins the battle. And it's hard to believe. How can my suffering, how can my humbling myself make the difference? Russell Moore, who has previously served as president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary as dean of the School of Theology, uh, senior vice president for academic administration, etc., etc., etc. He's now the editor of Christianity Today, and he recently gave an interview about a new book he's just written. And he said, here's why he wrote this book. He said, it was the result of having multiple pastors tell me. I wasn't one of them, just in case you were wondering. Essentially, the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount. They would say in their preaching, turn the other cheek. Does anyone recognize that from the Bible, from the lips of Jesus Christ himself? And then they would have someone in their church come up to them after and say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And what was alarming to me, more went on, is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would not be, oh, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. 
And that's what we think, isn't it? Turn the other cheek up to a point, right? <laughs> or turn the other cheek when it's convenient. Or turn the other cheek when I can see how that will help me solve the problem. But the problem is turn the other cheek isn't just something Jesus said in passing. Turn the other cheek is his way. We are people who believe we must do, aren't we? I got to fix it. We're Southern, or we're not Southern, they're Southern Baptists. We're Central Valley people. We got to fix it. We got hands, that's what they're for. We got feet to get up and go. No one gave me this. Well, sometimes someone gave it to us, but we believe in self reliance, don't we? Start working, work the problem, fix it. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. That doesn't fix it. Right? You ever seen turn the other cheek fix it? Well, I haven't, so there you go. <laughs> Actually, no, that's true. It does at times, but it's totally countercultural, isn't it? It's totally counterintuitive. I remember once I was at the bank and somebody came up and she just yelled at me like I couldn't believe. It was miserable. She came back the next day. And she treated me so badly that when she, when she walked in the door, I thought to myself, I'm going to duck under the counter and not be here. I, was, I so did not want anything to do with her. And she, I, but I thought, like, no, got to have some courage. I got to do this. I I was, everyone else was busy. I was the only one. <laughs> they were probably all busy because they were like, I don't want to help her. I saw what she did to Ian the other day. She came up to my window and I said, how can I, I remember her name still. How can I help you? I'm not going to tell you her name just in case, but uh, how, how can I help you today? I am so glad to see you. She said, here's what I, I want. And I said, let me take care of that for you. And I did my very best and I helped her. And she was, that wasn't the first time she'd been mean to me. And as she was about to leave, she looked me right in the eye and she said, yesterday, I was really mean to you and I'm sorry. doesn't feel like it'll help, and yet it changed the world just a little bit on that day. Richard Bauckham says it this way. I want to leave us with this this morning. They've, these people, they've just heard the way to do this, the way to triumph over your enemies is to trust in the blood of Jesus to keep telling everyone how great Jesus is, even though that will get you in hot water, and you'll win. And the people are looking around and saying, I see a lot of dead Christians. I mean, literally dead Christians. Bauckham says, even Christians must have been tempted to think that the beast was winning, that the dragon was winning, that Satan was winning. Because why? To refuse to compromise was to become even more helpless victims. What was the point of resisting the beast when he was proving irresistible? But John's message is that from the heavenly perspective, things look quite different. The martyrs are the real victors. How easy is it to draw a sword? And how hard to let it run you through?
The martyrs are the real victors. They've done the hard thing. To be faithful and witness to the true God, even to the point of death, is not to become a victim of the beast, but to take the field against him and win. Folks, this week, how does God want you to win? Because it's not by beating the snot out of somebody with your argument or with your power or with your influence. It's not to triumph by power in any way, but to walk the way of Jesus, who has kicked Satan out of heaven by his death and resurrection and who invites us up and who is coming back to make right all that has gone wrong. Walk the way of Jesus.